So uh, Christianity is different than every other world's religion. Do you know that? Yeah, in many respects. Here's one. Uh, we Christians are uh, distinguished from every other faith group with regard to the way we are told to treat our enemies. Did you know that? Other faith perspectives are pretty clear. Kill those who oppose you. We are not permitted that. So, uh, revenge or retaliation with reference to those who have offended, wounded, hurt, even abused us. Revenge, retaliation with reference to those who may persecute us. Those are not options in our faith perspective. Just to show you the distinction I'm speaking of, there's a wonderful Christian man named Bob Deffenbaugh who shares a quotation. These are the words of Nikita Khrushchev. Do you remember him? He was the one-time premier of the then Soviet Union. Khrushchev said the difference between Christianity and communism is great. When someone strikes you on the face, you turn the other cheek. If you strike me on the face, I'll hit you so hard your head will fall off. That's what Khrushchev said. That sounds pretty good. It's inviting. It's enticing. It would be pleasurable to punish those who have punished us. But I'm telling you we're not permitted that option. In fact, the text before us tonight makes this abundantly clear. It's Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. Tough stuff, not to understand, but to do. Again, just to review, first part of Romans tells us what we are to believe. The second part of Romans tells us what we are to do in light of what we believe. And so this is one of the things we are to do in light of all that is true about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, verse 17. Never, never means not even once in a while. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never and not to anyone. We're not permitted to do it. We cannot return evil for evil. However, what about this from Exodus chapter 21? You know about this. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Well, folks, that passage in Exodus 21, look at the context, is about public law, not response to personal offense. If you personally hurt or offend me, that's an entirely different thing than you violating one of the laws of the land. The Exodus 21 passage is saying, as a matter of public policy, the justice institution of the society must punish crime against its citizenry in proportion to the violation. In other words, Exodus 21 simply says to the government, the punishment must fit the crime. But this does not authorize individual offended parties 
to take matters into their own hand. In fact, the text goes on to say here in verse 17, respect what's right in the sight of all men. You know what that implies? It implies that even unsaved men and women have within them a sense of right and wrong. How did it get there? God did it. He implanted in each of us a sense of right and wrong. That's why most thieves do their stuff at night. Everybody knows it's wrong to steal. Therefore, you try not to get caught in the process of doing it. And so this text is saying, now look at here, you can focus all of your energy on how to avenge yourself with reference to someone who's offended you or hurt you. Or you can focus all of your thinking instead on discerning with God's help what does everyone consider the right thing to do. In fact, we are to do this, verse 18. If possible, so right away we, knows it, we know it may not be. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That is saying we Christians are to be the peacemaker, though we may not succeed in being the peace achiever. You see, so it says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, seek peace, not conflict. Why is this only a possibility? It, well, that's because peace between two people involves two people. You see, it's not unilateral, it's bilateral. So we have to know this, doing the right thing as instructed to by God may not beget the right response. Did you know that? So if, if you do the right thing with reference to someone and that someone doesn't respond rightly to you, it doesn't invalidate the fact that you chose to do the right thing. And the Bible, this is tough stuff. It's easy to come to church, but it's really tough to live the Christian life in light of what's already true. And God says, this is how you should live. You should take the high road. You should always do the right thing. You must not return evil for evil to anybody. You must seek to make peace, even if the other person refuses your efforts. But wait a second. Is this text saying that evil people should not be punished? No, it's not saying that at all. It is simply saying that we individual Christians must not be the ones who do the punishing. That's all it's saying here. And so it says in verse 19, never, there's the word again, never take your own revenge. Beloved, that's us, beloved by God. Paul's speaking to insiders, not outsiders. Never take your own revenge, fellow Christians but leave room for the wrath of God. Apparently, the wrath of God is so immense and intense, it needs room to operate, and we could crowd it out by taking matters into our own hand. No, no, don't do it. It says leave room for the wrath of God because it's written, where? In Deuteronomy. Paul's quoting from it. It's written, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. So you have two options when hurt and offended. One, you could take matters into your own hand. I'll get even. I'll teach that person never to cross me. That person doesn't know who he is messing with. So that's one option. Take matters into your own hand. The second option is to let God handle things. And I must tell you this. 
One of those options rules out the other. One excludes the other. So, so if I choose to let God handle things and be the justice maker, then that rules out me seeking personal revenge. But if I say, God, I'll take care of this. I'm a better justice maker than you. I will return the same quantity of hurt to that person that that person heaped upon me. I think you may be too lenient. If you do that, you just squeezed out. You left no room for the wrath of God. That's what it says right there. Could I ask you a question? I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but do you, do you have the audacity to think that you are a better justice maker than Almighty God? How dare we think that? But if you exercise the option of retaliation and revenge, that's essentially what you're saying. So what do we do instead of revenge? Well, here's something that's real tough. We forgive. My goodness. That is so unnatural. That's right. It's a supernatural. Listen, revenge does not need to be taught us. It comes naturally. Forgiveness is supernatural. Forgiveness is the stuff of Almighty God. Forgiveness is what the Lord Jesus did for us. So when we speak about our mandate to forgive others, it's a mandate to be really Nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. As he has forgiven us, we're called upon to forgive others. You think that's easy? Oh, no. But if God says do it, don't you think he'll empower us to do this very thing if it's our heart's desire? So we are to choose to forgive the offender rather than seek revenge against the offender. And here's why. When we do so, I think we're revealing to that person something of the nature of God. He's merciful. You see? I mean, he has been to us, has he not? And so when we show mercy to that person, we're revealing to that desperately lost person who's simply acting against us in light of his or her lostness, we're revealing to that person this very attribute of God. He is a God of mercy. So that's why God wants us to do this, because he wants us to show the most needy of people the angriest, most arrogant, most evil. He wants us to show them this merciful side of God. But that's not the whole story. God is not just merciful. He's also just. And you and I need to know no wrong committed against any one of God's people will go unpunished unless that wrongdoer ultimately comes to the same point we have and says, Lord Jesus, forgive me, a desperate sinner. Thank you for all that you've done so that my sins would be covered and atoned for. You've cast them behind your back. Oh, God, come into my life. Change me. Get something out of me now. Make me the person you want to be. Take me with you to be with you in heaven for forever more. So, so, so the wrath of God is there. We don't have to manifest our own wrath. The wrath of God is there. It's already been poured out on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must be people who are so grateful for what God has done for us that even the one who has hurt us most is not one we want to suffer in hell. We want that person to repent, benefit in the same way we have 
from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven. So folks, when we refuse to take revenge, we reflect something of God's mercy and we defer to God's justice. We say, God, we say, Father, handle it. Not only does it say forgive, verse 20 is a killer, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's what it says. I've looked at every, I've tried to find translations that don't have that. But man, it's in there one way or the other. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? We can learn something about this from an ancient Egyptian religious custom. If someone violated one of the ancient Egyptian religious laws to show repentance and uh, contrition, that person would put a hot pan of coals on his head, walk around, and essentially say, I am burning with shame and guilt. And this text is saying, if you paradox your enemy, the one who has offended you, if you, if you play by different rules of the game, if you don't return evil for evil, if you play by different rules, if you, if you manifest unreasonable, unpredictable kindness to the one who has hurt you, if you give your enemy much more than your enemy deserves, it has the potential of having impact as great as hot coals being on that person's head. And that person may come one day to say, oh, God. Look at how your son or daughter responded to me. I am consumed with burning shame and guilt over the injustice with which I have treated your son or daughter. And this gives me a glimpse, oh God, of your holiness and power and your kind intentions and willingness to forgive me. That's what the text says to do. Do you know the Christian life is not for wimps? That's some tough stuff. I like the first part of Romans. It didn't require anything of me. It just told me what's true. Then when I got around chapter 12, it says, in light of what's true, this is what you are to do. The hearing part is kind of easy. The doing part's a challenge. This is the doing part. Now there's one final thing we're told to do, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. Yeah, that's what it says. When Paul says don't be overcome by evil, you know what he's saying? He's saying do not let the desire for revenge destroy your life. You know, when you try to get even with someone who has hurt you, uh, you are empowering that one who has hurt you. The other person can always has the last word. It's only when you forgive that person that you have the last word, you say. Otherwise, that person who you refuse to forgive still controls your life. And so failing to forgive, if you think about it, has nothing to do with the other person. It's not fair to you not to forgive that other person. Keeping the offender on your hook means you're carrying around that burden constantly. Listen, many, many years ago, uh, I was in the, uh, in the military overseas, and there was a, a group of Christian guys. We would go to the military 
uh, chapel. And one day, one of the guys says, Stuart, can you lend me $20? Now, I was kind of a new believer, and I don't understand all this lending stuff, so that's not a good thing to get into. But I didn't know. So I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I'm a little short. I'll give it back to you next week. Okay, here's the 20 bucks. Next week comes. It's Sunday. We're in the chapel service. You know what I mean? I see him. He sees me. He doesn't make any mention. No overtures are paying back the debt. I just think, hey, just let it go. But I can't let it go. I'm thinking in my head, that guy owes me 20 bucks. Now, I know this is going to be hard for you to imagine, my last name being what it is, but it wasn't the money. It was the uh, lack of disrespect, the uh, truthfulness, all that kind of stuff. Well, the next week comes up. I see him. He looks at me. He takes his seat on the other side of the room as if he's deliberately trying to avoid me. So I found him and went up to him and said, hey, what's up? How's it going? You all right? Oh, yeah, doing good. Doing good. How are you? I'm fine. How's your financial situation? Everything taken care? Oh, yeah, about that. I, I forgot it. I'll bring it. No problem. We could forget. See you next week. Third week. I see him next week. There he is. He avoids me again. No 20 bucks. Worship is beginning. We're singing. We're praying. I'm not thinking about God at all. I'm thinking about the guy who owes me 20 bucks. And I'm angry, and I'm getting consumed, and I'm distracted from worship because I'm carrying the burden of this guy on my hook. I will not let him go. He's my debtor. And then suddenly it hit me. What if I no longer declare him as my debtor? What if I just, in my mind, declare him as a guy I don't trust and will never give money to again? That's okay. So I, in my mind, I said, oh, God, that guy owes me nothing. Boom, I was free. He's off my hook. Now, he's not off God's hook. I do not have the authority to get that rascal off God's hook. But I can trust God to be a better justice maker than me. And I felt, I thought, well, I don't want to cut him loose. He doesn't deserve it. But then I realized, I'm not freeing him. I'm freeing me. Lewis Smedes said, when you forgive, you set a prisoner free. But you discover that the real prisoner was yourself. But I didn't want to forgive him. You know why? He got to me. He took advantage of me. I felt violated. And anger and unforgiveness gives you a false sense of strength. You think you got the power. You think you're in control because you're retaining your anger. Oh, no. Anger is just a mask for hurt and weakness. The real power is forgiveness. Because only a free person can choose to forgive. When we refuse to do so, someone said, when you, when you harbor an attitude of unforgiveness towards someone who has hurt you, it's like drinking poison uh, but expecting the other person to die. You're poisoning yourself with enmity and bitterness and distraction from worship and all the rest. You think you're harming that guy. That guy is absolutely unaffected. He could care less. He got you 20 bucks and he's eating pizza with it somewhere. You're getting an ulcer. So I realized, oh, no, forgiveness is the 
real power. And so the Bible says here, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. That's a distinctively Christian approach. In fact, the word overcome, listen to this word in the Greek. Listen to this word, nikao or something like that. Nikao or something. Does it sound like anything? Sound like Nike? That's what I was trying to get at, but I botched it with the pronunciation. But it's the word from which you get the word Nike, like Nike missile. Remember those? Nike shoes, it means victor. This text is essentially saying, if you give up your appetite to retaliate and trust God to be a better justice maker, if instead you forgive those who otherwise are debtors to you in one way or another, if you do that, you will cease to be the victim, you will be the victor. That's what it says. So God calls us to be merciful, returning good for evil and treating our enemies much better than they deserve because he has treated us much better than we deserve. And all this is to reveal to people the mercy of God. But wait, do you mean to say God never intends for his justice to be carried out here? Is it just a future thing? Oh, no. He intends for his justice to be carried out here, but not by individual offended parties, by God-ordained societal institutions like the military and law enforcement. Now, if we're still around next week, Romans 13, you'll see about the role of government. Many of us have problems with aspects of government, but don't. It's an institution ordained by God, just as the church and the family is. Governments go awry, but the concept is a beautiful one, a wonderful one. Government is there for the protection of its citizenry and the punishment of evildoers. And so law enforcement agencies and the military are God's way of imparting his justice to the wrongdoer today. As an individual offended, I must show mercy. But as an institution, the institution of society is not called upon to turn the other cheek. The institution of society is called upon to restrain the evildoer and impose a punishment that, fixed, that fits the crime as a deterrent from crime and for the protection of, of society. And so just one final thing that might be on your mind. What about self-defense? What about, I mean, this says return, don't return evil to evil, forgive, and all the rest. So does this mean, uh, you know, someone breaks into your house late at night, you're there with your family, and they're at risk, but you, based on this passage, you just take it, and you let the, the uh, evildoer have his way. Is that what this says? No way. Folks, if someone breaks into your house at night, you're not, you have not premeditated an act of vengeance against that person. You are simply responding to a threat to yourself or to your family. I think I can show you in the Bible that it's unbiblical and immoral. If someone is being assaulted and in danger and you have the capacity to do something about it and don't, that is an unbiblical kind of thing. So self-defense, defense of life and limb and, and of others, 
actually puts a check on evil. That's not an evil thing. You're stopping the evildoer. Now, I know this is a controversial kind of a thing because some Christians are pacifists, and, you know, it, it's a free country. But I don't, think, I don't think there's a biblical basis for pacifism, uh, to be frank with you. And so, for instance, Luke chapter 22, verse 36 the Lord was talking to his disciples. He's about to send them out, and he tells them what to take on their journey. He says, if you have a money belt, take it along, also a bag. And get this, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Why? Self-defense and defense of others along the way. So it's clear to me the Lord not only permitted uh, self-defense and weapons to facilitate that, he even encouraged the use of the weapon of that day, the sword, for self-defense purposes and to protect others. So uh, much more could be said about that, but I don't want to because I can tell I've said enough. Can I just tell you this as we close? There is one area for sure, in which the use of deadly force, deadly force can be used biblically for self-defense and defense of innocent others. However, uh, deadly force can never, ever be permitted for the defense or propagation of the gospel. You can never spread the gospel at the edge of a sword. The gospel is spread by discussion <laughs> and interaction and invitation. This too is a distinction of Christianity. We're not like ISIS. Islam says, believe or be slaughtered. Christianity says, the Lord Jesus invites you. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The Bible says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The Bible says, truly, truly, I say to you, he, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death. We share. We don't coerce. And so no weaponry, no carnal manipulation, none of the worldly means of persuasion are permitted with regard to the defense and propagation of the gospel, which means if we are threatened for our allegiance to the Lord Jesus, we have to express a willingness to die as a martyr. I've never faced it, but many of our brothers and sisters are, even as we speak comfortably and safely here, all around the world. More Christians are being persecuted in our day. There's a possibility from a human point of view that Christians will be absolutely wiped out in Syria. Wiped out. ISIS is slaughtering Assyrian Christians even as we, even as we speak. That is not permitted defense of life? Yes, yes. Furthering the gospel? No. Defense of self by denying Christ Jesus? No. We have to say, oh, God, give me the grace to stand firm, to stand by you, never to deny the faith.
even at the ultimate cost. So I want to tell you this. We here who have been recipients of God's grace, it's pretty simple. We now have to be gracious and merciful because we've been recipients of his grace and mercy. And so this notion of forgiveness is absolutely senseless unless you see it, and I see it in the context of Christ's forgiveness of us. You see, the forgiven ones can now become forgiving ones. So I close with this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. What? Uh, but then it says, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Ah. There's the theology of the forgiveness. And the practical application is, I must not retaliate. I must not seek revenge. I must leave punishment of evildoers up to duly appointed government agencies. And as someone who's been good-newsed, I must be an emissary, not of evil or of hate, but of good news. And folks, our willingness to forgive others, it seems to me, is a measure of just how much we really value being forgiven by God. Oh God, our prayer is that you would be known through us. Yes, through proclamation and even behavior, public behavior. Oh God, may people see in us the results of a pardon, of forgiveness, of right standing with you. May they see us to be free to take it on the chin without retaliating to take a personal offense as if it's not personal because those who harm us harm you. We belong to you. Oh, God, in the way we conduct ourselves with regard to those who mistreat us, may they see both your kindness and may we defer to your justice. And in this, oh, God, may many unsaved see the difference you make in the lives of those whose lives you inhabit. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.